this episode, I had a conversation with Salih Can Açıksöz on his book Sacrificial Limbs, Masculinity, Disability and Political Violence in Turkey, published by University of California Press in 2019. University of California Press kindly provided the listeners of Kaman Podcast a 30% discount. You can find the promo code and the link to the UC Press website in the show notes. Hi everyone, welcome to the joint episode of Cayman Podcast and Anthropological Airwaves. We are in Vancouver for the annual conference of American Anthropological Association. And today with us, we have John Ochiksos, and we will be having a, a conversation about his new book, Sacrificial Limbs, Masculinity, Disability and Political Violence in Turkey, published by University of California Press in 2019. John Ochiksos is an assistant professor of anthropology at the University of California, Los Angeles, UCLA. He received his PhD in anthropology from the University of Texas at Austin in 2011. He served as a Mellon postdoctoral fellow in Asian and Middle Eastern studies at the College of William and Mary, an assistant professor of Middle Eastern and North African studies at the University of Arizona. His first book, Sacrificial Limbs, Masculinity, Disability, and Political Violence in Turkey, chronicles the everyday lives and political af- activism of disabled veterans of Turkey's Kurdish conflict. His works has appeared in journals including the Jur- Journal of Ottoman and Turkish Studies Association, the Journal of Middle East Women's Studies, Current Anthropology, Medical Anthropology Quarterly, and Culture, Medicine, and Psychiatry. Thank you for joining us today, John. Thank you for inviting me, Denise. I'm very happy to be here. It's our pleasure. Today we'll be talking to John about his new book, Sacrificial Limbs, Masculinity, Disability and Political Violence in Turkey. John, this is by far the best ethnography that I have read on the last 20 years of Turkey's political landscape. And it is also unique in the sense that it situates the Kurdish question in this landscape by approaching it from multiple unconventional angles. John conducted ethnography and ethnographic research with veterans injured and dis- disabled in the Kurdish conflict and the families of the deceased veterans, and he focused on their lives in the aftermath of this loss and their attempts to rebuild their lives and their worlds. But while doing that, The book also makes crucial interventions into debates about sovereignty, political violence, nationalism and ultranationalism, and gender. John, could you start by telling us about your motivation to start doing this research? I think many factors came together in uh, my formulation of this research project. Uh, There's a biographical context to it. Uh, I grew up in the midst of the Kurdish conflict, which overdetermined basically all aspects of political, cultural life of Turkey and its future trajectories. I've been interested in the questions of gender and masculinity as a feminist or feminist ally man for a long time. And my previous research on prenatal genetic testing made me aware to the ways in which disability and gender intersect in the production of hierarchy of worthy and unworthy lives. 
but my decision to work on this specific project crystallized during a pre-dissertation research that I conducted with the Kurdish urban poor in an Istanbul shanty town, during which I met two injured uh, village guards, Korujus paramilitary uh, forces, whose narratives of masculinity, uh, sexuality and reproduction were uh, inseparably intertwined with their experiences of political violence and disability. After, you know, this research, I started to think about, you know, whether I could conduct a research on uh, disabled veterans of the Kurdish conflict and decided to move forward and carry out this project. And all these, uh, I have to mention, were taking place in the post 9-11 American academic cultural context in which uh, American wars in the Middle East have fueled a renewed interest in the questions of war, violence, injury, disability, etc. So this is how I ended up doing this project. It's really interesting. And I think this must be one of the most difficult fieldwork experiences in the context of Turkey, due to the contradiction of your commitments to your interlocutors and your political position as a leftist intellectual in Turkey. In the book, you call this position a gray zone. I would like you to reflect on that gray zone and what looking into that gray zone taught you. This is a great question. So first, let me start by uh, reflecting on the concept of gray zone and how I use it. The concept of gray zone was originally coined by the Italian Jewish Holocaust survivor, author Primo Levi, who used the concept to talk about his experiences in concentration camps. He particularly used it to refer to a group of Jewish prisoners special squads, as they were called in camps, Sonderkommandos, who were charged with the everyday logistics of concentration camps. So basically they were collaborating with Nazis, helping them to convince prisoners to go into ovens without uh, making a scene, processing the bodies of the killed prisoners, etc. So Primo Levi, when talking about the Sonderkommandos, remind us that our everyday distinctions, ethical and political distinctions, do not necessarily work that well in places where he calls uh, gray zones, places where our categories of perpetratorship and victimship get increasingly blurred. So this concept of gray zone has been taken up by many anthropologists who work not only in context of political violence, but also in context of extreme poverty to refer to the kinds of difficulties of anthropologists and also the peoples on the ground to make these kind of easy distinctions between perpetrators and victims. So my research interlocutors, disabled veterans of the Kurdish conflict, also occupied a gray zone. They were forcibly conscripted into the army and became the perpetrators of sovereign violence even if unwillingly, and then got injured and disabled in a conflict that reflects Turkey's long-standing policies against its own Kurdish population. 
so in a, in a way victimized by the very conflict of which they are also perpetrators, right? So they occupied that kind of gray zone, and this gray zone actually extended to their post-war civilian lives. On the one hand, they suffered and became marginalized and disfranchised because of their disabilities, but their politically marked disabilities also drew them into ultranationalist politics, turning them into barriers of political violence again, and this time against states' perceived enemies, uh, such as uh, dissident public intellectuals. So, as you can see, there's this kind of back and forth movement between victim and perpetrator positions that play a crucial role in the politicization of disabled veterans. The interesting aspect of my own take on of this concept, gray zone, is that generally in anthropological works using the phrase of gray zone, gray zone is something that belongs to the world of our research interlocutors. The anthropologist comes to contact with this gray zone during ethnographic fieldwork, and then after the fieldwork, uh, this gray zone is supposed to be sublimated into ethnographic narrative, activism, advocacy, whatever, uh, even if, continue, if it continues to haunt the anthropologist in nightmares, <laughs> in uh, traumatic traces of the fieldwork period, etc., which frequently happens. Which frequently happens, right. But in my case, I was further sucked into this gray zone uh, after I exited the field. And this happened through my own becomings and encounters with the state. Right after finishing my dissertation, I was also conscripted into the Turkish army. Uh, I was privileged to serve only for the period of basic training, but still so. I through this process of becoming soldier, I also became a bearer of uh, sovereign violence myself. But I also criticized the sovereign violence uh, and the state's policies against its Kurdish population by signing now famous peace petition, which turned me into a so-called terrorist, a traitor, or an enemy of the state in the eyes of the government, but also in the eyes of many of my informants, basically ending my prospects of going back to the field. So at the end, I myself came to occupy this kind of gray zone in, in many ways. And what did this teach me? Um, obviously, there are many methodological uh, consequences or many methodological lessons I drew out of this experience. And one particularly important one in our current milieu when right-wing nationalist militarist movements uh, managed to effectively mobilize all these groups of populations who are most harmed by these sorts of policies is that while conducting research in far-right communities, there's rarely any neutral anthropological space. The anthropologists must come to occupy a gray zone, his or herself. And uh, this is, you know, an ethically and politically difficult one, but nevertheless, it's a requirement for being able to access and being able to come to terms with the suffering of these people whose politics is inimical 
to our own political agendas and interests and our own uh, understandings of truth and justice. So I see that my book is an attempt towards this direction where we try to come to terms with the suffering of those who anthropologists do not necessarily like. That's why I think this must have been a very difficult fieldwork for you. And in the book, you have several ethnographic instances that depict the difficult position that you find yourself in. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, it was a difficult ethnographic experience uh, in many ways. When I started my fieldwork, I was hoping to, to show the kind of discrepancies between or the disjunctures between the political representations, nationalist representations of disabled veterans and veterans' own embodied experiences as lower-class disabled men. What I did not see coming was that in the, in the course of my fieldwork, they started to organize these protests against public intellectuals. And I was, I found myself in this dilemma. On the one hand, I really wanted to attend every site that my informants live their lives. But on the other as hand, a good ethnographer does. as a good ethnographer does, yes. But on the other hand, obviously, attending these protests where all the media was present would place me in a very different kind of position. So I decided not to attend these protests, but to meet with my interlocutors right after the protests to hear about their reflections, etc. And at certain instances, I would go to these protests, watch them from afar, and <laughs> then meet them at a different place and write down my reflections. So as you can see, you, I had to juggle different kinds of positionalities as uh, a so-called native anthropologist who had different kind of commitments as a as a citizen, as an ethnographer, as an intellectual, etc. Yes, also in a country where there has been ongoing violence and universal conscription, one of the main interventions I think the book makes is to talk about the nation-state through the everyday experiences and, as you said, embodied experiences mm -hmm. of your interlocutors. Speaking of which, I would like to turn to the question of the body. In anthropology and social sciences in general, we don't always specify what we mean when we say body or mm -hmm. bodies. But as a med medical anthropologist and a meticulous ethnographer, you bring into your analysis the bodies of the soldier, the disabled veteran, the beggar, the guerrilla, the guerrilla leader, the intellectual, and focus on their differential, affective, symbolic, and material relationships with each other, sometimes turning into each other as in the process that you call becoming soldier and becoming terrorist, and their relationships to the Turkish nation-state and the Turkish body politic at large. Would you like to talk about what looking at these bodies and their relationships show us about the complicated dynamics of politics that we cannot see otherwise? Well, that's, that's a wonderful question. 
And it's a difficult one too. So let me address your question by first talking about how I conceptualize the body. First, let me say that when the notion of the body is evoked in in humanities and social sciences, it's generally evoked without reference to the real, you know, somatic bodies. It's used in a textual way. Mm. I don't use it in a textual way in this book, although I look at representations too. So in the book, I bring and view together different theoretical approaches to the body. Without going into details, let me just indicate from which direction I approach the question of the body. I'm informed by the basic premise of uh, phenomenology, or rather critical phenomenology, which is that we relate to the world, uh, we connect to the world and to the others through our bodies. Uh, this is a crucial insight for me. I mean, our our political experiences, our interpolation into certain kind of ideological positions, the way that we practically experience our surroundings and the others near us, all these happen through our bodies. I bring this insight of phenomenology uh, together with an insight of affect theory and a psychoanalytically inflected uh, Marxist theory, which is that politics always involves feelings. Our relation to political positions, our relation to ideologies, our relation to political movements and hegemony and the state is always mediated through feelings, affects, fantasies, etc. And finally, I draw from a long tradition of sociocultural anthropology that shows us how bodies are crucial in the representation and construction of power and social hierarchy. So I bring together these these different insights to look at the different ways in which disabled veterans are represented, physically molded, governed in contemporary Turkey, as well as how disabled veterans feel, act upon the, the kind of political developments, or relate to the state and the nation and to the enemies, for example. Mm. So this is what I try to do in the book. So on a broad theoretical level, uh, the work, uh, Sacrificial Limbs, is a study of the gendered relation uh, between embodiment, masculinity, and political subject formation in the context of an ethno-politically divided uh, war-torn nation. And in the book, I follow uh, the life and political trajectories of disabled veterans uh, over the course of the Kurdish conflict and show how different modalities of violence that impinge upon their lives, such as uh, war, political violence, uh, structural and symbolic violence targeting working class and underclass men with disabilities, etc., inform and get translated into each other in unexpected ways and enroll disabled veterans as ultranationalist subjects. So, in a way, this is a historical ethnography of Turkey's last decades, an historical ethnography of nationalism, militarism, uh, state formation, welfare, Turkey's 
European Union membership process, etc., and the role masculinity and disability play in these processes from the viewpoint of the bodies and embodied experiences of disabled veterans of the Kurdish conflict. As you mentioned, one of the important things that I hope the book does is showing how the politicization of disabled veterans owes a lot to a series of symbolic, affective, ideological and biopolitical relations, equations, translations and mistranslations between a series of bodies. And, you know, as you mentioned, there there are all these different bodies that emerge in the course of uh, the book. Uh, My interlocutors entered a mimetic relation with guerrillas uh, in the course of their uh, counterinsurgency war experience. They, in their post-war lives, they got conflated with disabled uh, street beggars as disabled men. They interpreted their suffering and place in the world in relation to the health and life conditions of the imprisoned guerrilla leader Abdullah Öcalan, and then took revenge on intellectuals who they saw as scapegoats and substitute victims, mainly for Öcalan. And you know, and you depict all of this through very vivid ethnographic vignettes and ethnographic instances. I can't, for example, get over the scene of the disabled veteran who was, I think, a double amputee, right? Who was um, driving his car with with his yeah, he crutches. Was a, he was a leg. Yeah, he was a leg amputee, and uh, yeah, he was driving the car with his crutches to reach to the hospital, military hospital on the other side of Istanbul until he was stopped by a police commander who scolded him. But then, after learning about his story, uh, gave him this kind of permission to drive with one one foot, uh, despite obviously the, the danger that it poses in the traffic. Uh, True. And then there there are the vivid depictions of the scenes of losing a limb, how a landmine explodes the moment prior to the explosion as a metaphysical experience of um, for example, I think in one of the vignettes there was the supernatural entity that the soldier, the veteran by then soldier, saw disguised as a soldier escaping from him. So these supernatural entities sometimes protect these people from near-death experiences or appear in moments where they lose a limb. So the question of the body, as you said, is not textual, but very material and affective um, and comes through as very vivid and live um, scenes and experiences of these veterans in the book. So that covers the limbs part of the title. (laughs) Let's turn to the sacrifice part. Sacrifice is a major analytic in the book. Could you elaborate on the relationship between that sacrifice and the nation-state as you theorize them in this book? 
Military service is popularly referred to as vatan borcu, debt to the homeland in in Turkey. Uh, so it's understood through the, uh, the lens of debt. And this debt is a gendered debt. And it undergears the sexual contract between the state and male citizenry, right? Because of universal conscription, every Turkish citizen man, except those with disabilities and those who are openly gay and trans, have to go through military service in order to become full-fledged citizens. And that also comes with all kinds of social sanctions. Uh, families do not favor marriage until someone completes military service. Generally in job ads, you know, employers seek for people who have completed military service, etc. So military service operates as a rite of passage into heteronormative masculinity. And leaving, adulthood, right? Yes, exactly. It's heteronormative adult masculinity, uh, leaving outside all women and all kinds of non-normative masculinities, right? So this is the kind of hegemonic life transition, hegemonic uh, life trajectory as it is constructed at the nexus of nationalism, militarism, state formation, and masculinity. So the question that I raise in the book is that what happens when a debtor clears his debt, but the transaction fails to deliver this promise? And this is exactly what happens in the case of disabled veterans. So they they clear their debt to the homeland by getting enrolled and uh, serving and then even fighting for the nation. But then this experience brings loss and injury and uh, disenfranchisement and disability for them. So I trace my interlocutors' experiences through the 80s and 90s and 2000s to show how the Turkish state and society constructed or saw these disabled veterans as a materialization of a gendered political crisis and how the state and non-state actors tried to address this crisis by governmentalizing these men and trying to remasculinize them by giving them all kinds of rights and entitlements, etc. Now, the interesting thing is that all these processes through which these disabled veterans were remade into productive and reproductive bodies and men uh, were tethered to a particularly strong sacrificial discourse that constructed them as Ghazis these kind of consecrated warriors, these religio-national heroes who sacrifice their limbs for the perpetuity of the nation-state, more so in the 2000s also for the perpetuity of the Ummah. So it's this kind of intertwinement of religion and a secular nationalism and the construction of these people as these kind of transcendental heroes who occupy the most holy place after the prophets or those who embody the military spirit, the geist of the Turkish nation. So there's something interesting here. So sacrifice comes into the picture as a result of all these death relations, but sacrifice itself has a transcendental quality that cannot be easily subsumed into uh, worldly 
uh, value and exchange systems, right? In that sense, there's an excess. Sacrifice can never be fully paid back. So it's this kind of unpayable debt. This notion of an excess, this excess debt, this excess sacrificial debt is what disabled veterans and also other nationalist figures deploy in welfare and political activism. And this is what gives the title of the book, Sacrificial Limbs. These sacrificial limbs is what consecrate disabled veterans and draw them into politics. And especially in the last two chapters of the book, I analyze different nationalist spectacles of death and sacrifice by looking at political demonstrations of disabled veterans where they take off their prosthetic limbs to protest the peace process. Or in the last chapter, what I call prosthesis repossession spectacles, where disabled veterans publicly take off and display their prosthetic limbs to protest debt enforcement proceedings targeting them for failed prosthesis payments. In that sense, I try to juxtapose nationalist economy of sacrifice and debt with a neoliberal capitalist uh, economy of consumer debt and try to see what happens when these different economies of debt collapse in the worlds of disabled veterans. As you can gather from the depth of the conversation, this is an amazing book. I have personally never read anything theoretically this deep, ethnographically this rich, and a book on Turkey that literally speaks to the reader. Thank you so much for the conversation about this book and your work overall. Thank you for these extremely generous remarks and these fantastic questions. So here we have to conclude our conversation with Diana Tuxos for the joint episode of Cayman Podcast and Anthropological Airwaves. You can find the link to the website of University of California Press in the show notes and purchase the book online. Thank you for listening and keep following us. 